Welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan. And today I'm joined by Ahmad Faruqi. He has had a distinguished career working with electric utilities. He's an expert in rate design, demand response programs, the integration of distributed energy resources into the grid. Really excited to have Ahmad on the podcast today. Ahmad, gre- greetings. Welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thank you. I'm doing very well. Pleasure to be here. I'm really glad to have you on the podcast. And are you uh, are you up in the Bay Area right now? Are, are you at your home office in the Bay Area? Is yes, that... I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area in the East Bay near Mount Diablo. Not near Mount Diablo. Okay. And you've been, I take it, you've been there for quite a while. That's right. 1989 is when we moved in here. And we have not moved since then. <laughs> That's the way to do it if you can, right? Um, well, let's let's go all the way back. Uh, I've introduced you already um, as a, a utility uh, expert in rate design and demand response program structures um, and the distributed uh, getting distributed energy resources into the grid. But um, before we get into your career, let's let's go all the way back. Uh, you were born and raised in Pakistan, correct? That is correct. Yes, 1953, April 25th. <laughs> And um, at that time, I did a little bit of research, but Pakistan had recently um, taken become independent, right? Didn't independence happen just a few years before that? 1947, yeah. August of 1947, India and Pakistan both gained independence from what was then called Great Britain. And what was what was the what was happening then on the ground um, in that time? I know it was very tumultuous. There was. Uh, geographic controversy between India and Pakistan? It had settled down by the time I arrived. Uh, Kashmir was and continues to be, of course, the bone of contention between the two countries. But uh, we were, my dad actually worked for an electric utility. He was a resident engineer at a power plant. So I grew up next to uh, a power plant. Uh, We were in a compound of houses and the power plant was... uh, the main attraction, so to speak. Of course, uh, I didn't know that one day my career would go in that direction. Uh, but, you know, there are things ha- that happen in life that you can never anticipate. All I remember is when I was five years old, there was a coup. The army mm. took over and the troops arrived at our doorsteps uh, because of the powerhouse. Uh, and dad uh, got a call at five in the morning from the guard saying the army is here, what am I supposed to do? And dad said, let them in. I mean, there's no way we can hold off the army. (laughs) And so the tanks just rolled in. And I remember all of that in the background of my mind as I grew up. Uh, And then he would transfer to another area and then get to another area. So I attended Catholic schools every place I went because he wanted me to get uh, his children to get the best education. Of course, we were Muslims and the Catholic schools um, were not uh, Muslim schools. They were parochial schools. Uh, we had, however, uh, a figure of Jesus Christ on the cross in every classroom, and none of us knew what it was. They never told us what it was. And some of us thought it was a plus sign, actually. And so so then we, we grew, and we, we, we became friendly with the Christians, and then high school came, and and then war broke out with India in 1965. And that's when I was um, really sort of intrigued by the army as a career. They were so well-dressed. They had the best cars. They had the best equipment, et cetera. The glamour 
of the army was, uh, and I had many relatives in the army as well. So I wanted to go and join the army and finish the job, which the 1965 war, war couldn't do, which is take over New Delhi and conquer India. And so I had my dreams as a teenager. Uh, my dad didn't want me to go in the army. He thought it was not for the people who are smart. He said, the ones who can't do anything else go in the army. I said, what about all these relatives that we have? He said, well, leave them aside. I'm talking about you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then I, he, he knew I wasn't going to let go. So he and a cousin of mine who was a colonel in the army, a, a medical doctor, they did a, uh, they did a strategic uh, invitation for me to go and get a medical checkup done. And I failed the medical checkup, according to this relative colonel of mine, um, for various reasons. Uh, chest expansion was insufficient. I had flat feet. I had knocked knees. I said, what does that have to do with being in the army? I'm going to be in a tank. No, no, you need to run fast. I said, I don't need to run. I'll be in a tank. But somehow... What that did was it tanked my desire to go into the army. They just rejected me. Yeah. And so then I wasn't sure what I was going to do as a career. Everybody else in the family was an engineer. So I thought, okay, I'd become an engineer. But even though I was good in physics and chemistry, I was terrible at the lab experiments. I couldn't get the titration to work or the resonance to happen. So my dad and my brother said, well, he, he won't make it into engineering school. We have to find something else for him to do. There's a professor who was a cousin of mine at the university, and she was consulted. Dad liked her. She was his niece. And she said, I think we need somebody in the civil service because our family doesn't have anyone in the civil service. Civil service is where the power resided in those days. Hmm. To get into the civil service, you needed to have a master's degree in something. It could be anything. And then you had to take a competitive exam. And then you were in and now you were a very powerful individual once you were in that civil service. So somehow I ended up in economics simply to get a degree that would qualify me for the civil service exam. And so I go into economics uh, and then I fell in love with the subject. And civil service was the last thing I wanted to do. I wanted to become a professor of economics. And yeah. so once I graduated, I thought, okay, I, you needed a PhD to be a professor, right? So I thought, okay, I'd go to some other country to get a PhD. I studied German for one year in case I get a German scholarship. I, of course, knew English, so I thought maybe I'd go to England. But England was no longer what it used to be. America was where everybody was focused on. Long story short, I ended up coming to UC Davis to study economics, to get a PhD, probably in Pakistani economics, and then go back and teach there at my University of Karachi. Well, the energy crisis happened just as soon as I arrived in the US in 1974. And the California Energy Commission was created. And when the first summer arrived, they called me, they said, we could use some of your assistance on some of these forecasting projects. So I said, okay, I, I don't know anything about energy. And I don't know what a kilowatt hour is from a kilowatt, but okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do a summer internship. I liked it so much that the next year when they called, I'd finished my coursework. And they said, uh, we have a position for postgraduate researchers and you can essentially get paid to write your dissertation. So that's what I ended up doing. A year and a half at the CEC, wrote my dissertation. They offered me a job. I didn't even apply for it, but they offered it to me. 
And I thought, okay, this is great. You know, I just work here. And Davis is where I live and work in Sacramento. But then somebody else who was more senior to me, he came to me and he said, don't take this job. This is not the place for you. You're too good for the Energy Commission. Wasn't sure what to make of that. It was like a, gave me a funny feeling. So, so then I applied elsewhere as well. And SCE offered me a job, um, which I almost took. But then EPRI came up with a better offer. And so I took the job at EPRI. I mean, I let, didn't actually let, move let, let, let me let me interrupt. Just a great a great explanation of how you got from Pakistan to America. Um, but what I'm puzzled by is you have published so many articles as a defense analyst, and and focused on Pakistan's defense. When did you do that? So so you know uh, it never left me. I still regretted not going into the army. There was something inside of me that mm. was waiting to come out. And it came out in 1999 when the Pakistani army attacked Indian positions in Kargil in Northern Kashmir. General Musharraf was the army chief. I was so incensed. Now my views had changed about the army. I used to be very pro-army. And then I had in my spare time at the library at UC Davis, I would read the Pakistani newspapers. Again, you know, you can get the boy out of Karachi. You cannot get Karachi out of the boy. Uh, that was so true of me. I, I was living. Yeah. My wife didn't care. what she, she was in my class. We were both from Karachi. But she had yeah. new friends, and that was behind her. But it was inside of me. Yeah. So it welled up when this invasion occurred. It was a terrible mistake. And so that's when uh, soon after that, 9-11 happened, it's just a coincidence. And then Stanford had annual conferences on the Kashmir problem, the India-Pakistan uh, conflict that was imminent. And somehow I got invited. And, and so I attended and they thought I was a nuclear engineer because I was working at EPRI and EPRI was on the Stanford Industrial Campus. The person who invited me <laughs> thought I was a nuclear engineer and would provide insights on nuclear weaponry. Well, at some point I said, no, I'm an economist. Then I wondered if he would disinvite me, but he, he kept me. <laughs> so Scott Sagan, Professor Scott Sagan, I mean, he, he's the one who got me into the, uh, into the mainstream of conversations about Pakistan in the US. And so then I started to do more research. I wrote articles, I circulated them. I got comments from people around the globe, including yeah. Henry Kissinger. I mean, I was randomly sending them to whoever whoever address I could find. And there were no emails in those days. So I was sending right. hard copies from Amartya Sen, later Nobel laureate. And so I said, okay, I'm going to write a book. And so I wrote a book and I had no pedigree in the area. So I got no royalties. This was a British publisher, Ashgate Publishing. And they said, we will give you a hundred copies of your book as your remuneration. And this will be your recognition. And then you can go on to write more. <laughs> So, yeah. so that's how I got into it. And, and once the book came out, then a Pakistani newspaper invited me to write weekly commentary. And so I started writing weekly commentary. And that's, that's how that story is. And this was really, um, it was your passion, or I guess it was it, it's a pro bono. Yeah, it's, it's a pro bono. They didn't get, yeah. actually, uh, honestly, there was an opportunity cost because my evenings and weekends, yeah. Uh, yeah. I was doing this and I had domestic issues. But why do you keep doing this? Who is paying you? Nobody. Right. 
Well, and then EPRI, what, what group were you involved with at EPRI then? It was the Demand and Conservation Program. Was and that initially, under, though, Clark Gellings at the time, or who was there? He, he hadn't arrived yet, so oh, I okay. predated sure. him. So, so, yeah. so I was initially hoping to get in the Demand and Conservation Program, which later became DSM and Clark Gellings arrived. But initially, I was put in the rate design study, the electric utility rate design study, which was uh, uh, Bob Malko was my boss. He was the former chief economist from the Wisconsin Commission. And his boss was Rene Malez, who was the division director. Um, so that's where I cut my teeth on rate design, something I knew nothing about. And honestly, I didn't want to do it. It was so boring. I wanted to do, to do demand forecasting, which is what my dissertation was about. So then at some point, they transferred me over. And then uh, Pradeep Gupta arrived from SCE, who had offered me the job at SCE that I didn't take. He said, well, I guess you didn't take that job, so I'm taking this job here. We became good friends. And then he hired Clark Gillings from PSENG. Yeah. And, yeah. and Clark and I uh, became, in many ways, the best of friends as the okay. decades came and went. I, I was there for seven years. And then I went into consulting. Yeah. And was that, was the consulting, was that Hagler Bailly? Was that the next stop? So no, it was actually, uh, so I had a couple of uh, shorter stops. Uh, the yeah. first one was with the Battelle Columbus Division, part of the Battelle Memorial Institute. Uh, they were the ones who hired me and I had done a lot of work with them, but um, it, it didn't kind of work out because I was the only person in California and they were all in Columbus, Ohio. So then I joined uh, Barricade and Chamberlain. Yep. And I was with them for seven years. John Chamberlain, Sam Barricade. That, I mean, yep. that's when DSM was in its heyday. Yeah. Well, and and then what kind of rates were you? What kind of rate work were you doing? Were you trying to? Um, this was before time of use rates, wasn't it? So so I did a little bit of time of use rates. At EPRI, yeah. when I was in the rate design study, there were still pilots happening. There were the yeah. FEA pilots. So I had done that, but then I became a DSM expert. And so at Barricade and Chamberlain, I did no rate design work. And then Barricade and Chamberlain exploded when the industry restructuring was happening. And yeah. uh, everybody thought DSM was going to die. And I think the, 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 blue book, the, blue, the blue book came out of the California PUC, right? The, the blue book uh, was 1996, I believe. Yeah, yes, it yeah. was the talk of the town. And yeah. I uh, left uh, BCI in 97. They, they essentially politely fired me. Uh, yeah. This was a firing among friends. Oh, you're, you're so good. You'll have your chance to create a new DSM consulting business. We just don't think there's a future for DSM. And you're kind of now Mr. DSM. So, <laughs> well, okay. is, that, is that when you went to Brattle? Is that, was that the so, next stop? So no, no, there, there were a couple of, so then I oh. went to Hagla Bayi. Okay. Then I went to yeah. Hagla Bayi. And because Hagla Bayi had some other ex barricade and Chamberlain people. Yep. Well, I, I didn't quite click with them. So there was another bump in the road and I was shown the door. And so then I returned to EPRI, my <laughs> old uh, stomping grounds. And EPRI, this time was in a new frame of reference, restructuring, competition, and rate design. So competitive pricing is what I, so that's where I sort of started my second career uh, yeah. in, in pricing. 
with real-time pricing and dynamic pricing and all of that good stuff, so to speak. I got carried away. Uh, we had a, a big conference uh, in Washington, D.C., where uh, Dan Fessler was invited. He was the ex-chair uh, of the CPUC, as you might recall, the yeah. ex-president, I should say. And he gave a dinner speech. This was the July of 2000. He said, whoever created this market design in California should be given a Nobel Prize because it is so brilliant. You don't have to sell your assets, you're generating assets. You just sell the power into the power exchange, and then you buy it back at the power exchange. Well, that dinner was short-lived, so to speak. And, and then the crisis happened, and then the world kind of pretty much shut down. Um, we, we had some good times at EPRI writing papers, doing conferences on what went wrong and this and that. That's when Charles River Associates reached out to me. And so mm -hmm. I made uh, five years at CRA. We did the statewide pricing pilot in California, which actually opened the door to smart meters in the state and eventually to time of use pricing in the state. It, it was, as I look back, probably the best project in my entire career. Mm -hmm. We had 30 mm -hmm. stakeholders. We would meet every six weeks, opposing sides, and and you know all kinds of views, utilities, stakeholders. Of every six weeks, it was like a brotherhood or or sisterhood or whatever you call it, the humanhood that was created. And those relationships have continued to this day. So that was the statewide pricing pilot, and CRA loved it so much they put it in their annual report. They went public. And they actually recruited people by showing this is the kind of good stuff we do. And then our business slowed down and they showed me the door. That's how life is, right, in corporate America. So that's when I called Peter Fox Penner, who I knew for years at Brattle. Uh, and okay. he had also previously been at CRA. I had known him from my every day. He said, you can join tomorrow if you want. No interview needed. I said, no, no, I think it's still good to go through the interview process. So, so then I, this was 2006. And yeah. uh, when I arrived at Brattle, I was the only one who did anything with retail markets. Anyone who did with the consumer, all of the stuff they did was wholesale markets and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Except for a little bit that Peter did. So you really saw, you saw the utility industry in the United States sort of go from just very basic pricing, right? Very basic rate structures, you know, different rates for residential versus commercial industrial, but to, uh, to, um, well, we haven't really gotten to real time pricing or dynamic pricing, uh, in many instances yet, but you, but you've really seen the industry get more sophisticated in terms of, in terms of rates. That is correct. And it has taken all the hair from my head to do it. <laughs> I mean, it, it has been a very onerous and difficult and contentious journey. It's but I, I, it's very I have, so, sorry. No, I was just going to say these rate rate cases, which you must have ended up as an expert witness again and again, very contentious, right? I mean, you're you're talking about taking money from one customer class and giving it to another or subsidizing. I mean, there's all the allegations, right? We, yeah, you're, you're basically you're, you're, you're accused. You're accused of every moral and immoral sin under the sun. Yeah. You're defending the vested interests. You're defending the shareholders. And somehow I was viewed as being anti-consumer by many parties. And right. of course, I must say there were times when I felt I was being asked to say something for a hidden agenda that I didn't fully grasp. 
there right. were moments of contrition that I had. And, and then over time, particularly on the solar issue, it became very apparent to me that there was a conflict of interest between what I wanted to do and say and what my clients wanted to do and say. And that's when I had the parting of the ways. I think it was around 2019 with most mm. of my clients. And they, they couldn't figure out what had happened to me. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I was still the same person, but somehow I had begun to see, like one of them said to me, oh, you have now gone over to the dark side. I said, no, I have gone over to the bright side. You're the one who's left behind in the dark side. I mean, it, it got pretty contentious. What was your vision then? What could, I mean, uh, just try to make it as simple as possible for our listeners. What can rates do that uh, that you would, I, in the ideal, if you could just sort of say, oh, okay, I'm in charge now. What can rates do that will help our society? I think rates can give us the price signal as to when to consume power and how much to consume power and also what type of power to consume. So rates are very powerful. They are the only device we really have in any market economy. I mean, you have a choice to go to Costco or to go to Safeway. The prices are different. You make your choice. It's the same exact commodity um, and you make choices. I mean, the same thing is true for everything you buy, whether it's clothing, uh, housing, shelter. But when we come to electricity, we have a regulated monopoly issue. I mean, we, we all have you know our view of that. But basically, looking particularly at my own home state, California has now my, been my home state since 1974, rates have gone up and up and up as if there is no tomorrow. And the question arises, why is there no limit to it? Why is there no competition? Well, solar is competition. On rooftops, solar is competition. And of course, that's why the utilities hate it. And they, they will never say that, right? They will always say, oh, we are very supportive of solar. It's just yeah. that we won't give you much for it when you export. We'll give you uh, just 20% uh, of what you pay when you import. I mean, those are the <laughs> kinds of logical uh, shows that are being put on. Because otherwise, they say, you'll be stealing money from the poor. Right, right, right. Why why didn't utilities get into the distributed energy resource business? Um, why, if, if I mean, I remember David Moskowitz, uh, commissioner from Maine. Remember David, pig farmer from Maine, and uh, or, or John Rowe, uh, CEO of uh, Exelon, uh, um, saying, you know, I'm, I'm just a rat. You know, wherever wherever the cheese is, I'll, I'll, I'll go there. Um, why, why did... Uh, we as a in, in America, why did we allow there to be you know all these solar companies that are competing with the utilities? Why couldn't the utilities just offer us rooftop solar? Well, that is the sixty-four million dollar question, okay. right? And, and <laughs> okay. it's not that they haven't tried. I mean, they have been trying for twenty-five years to get into the energy services business, broadly defined. Yeah, I'll give you one example before I come to solar. This was the state of Washington, Puget Sound Energy wanted to offer energy services to households. Only half of the state's energy efficiency goals were being met and the other half were not being met. So the utility said the barrier is lack of money to invest in the energy efficient equipment. So we will solve that problem by giving the customer the new equipment, leasing it and letting yep. them pay for it through their monthly bill. I mean, that's an idea that has been around for a while. They actually pushed on it. They had me as an expert witness to support the concept. Um, it died on the, the moment the hearings began. I was in the room 
And the first question from the chair of the commission to the senior VP of the utility was, do you realize there are many contractors in the room who think you are competing with them through this particular proceedings by trying to take away their business and you are a regulated monopoly. They are a competitive entity. So you have an unfair advantage. Have you yeah. talked to them? And the VP said, no, we haven't. Well, then come back after you've talked with them, case closed. Yeah, figure out a collaborative way of using that labor exactly. pool, perhaps. And, and, yeah. and so the same scenario um, stares them in the face as they look at uh, distributed energy resources. Yeah. And I have said this at many times in conferences, even before I retired, that if utilities were allowed to do rooftop solar and put it in the rate base, they would be the strongest advocates of rooftop solar. Yes. But because yes. they're not allowed, they're the loudest opponents. Yes. And it's so clear that even a kindergartner can understand it. Put it in the rate in the rate base and put it in the resource portfolio. Uh, all those resources and the utilities would be on board. Um, let's dive into the net uh, energy metering or the net billing issue now. And I've done I have done podcasts on this uh, already, so our listeners are, are aware that we've had we've gone from a net energy metering one to net energy metering two, and now we have something called net billing that really uh, dramatically reduced the export values whenever you're exporting to the grid the very functioning of the net metering, whenever you're exporting to the grid, the deal is much, much worse. Why did our governor go along with this when we've got, as a state, we've got such strong climate protection goals? I, um, again, think this is a $64 million question of why did Newsom become a nuisance? And uh, it happened because there are many allegations that he took money from the unions. I have no way of substantiating that claim, but yeah. there seems to be, as you will recall, when we had the big wildfires issue in Paradise, yeah. pg &E turned a town called Paradise into hell. It burned down, okay? Yeah. And there were lawsuits and there are convicted felon and so on and so forth. And they went bankrupt and then they came out of it. Well, there was an expectation based on statements from the governor that he was going to break up PG&E, that he was going to either municipalize it or break it up or bring about a radical change because the concern was their management was at fault and not anything else. They didn't even have records when San Bruno happened, you know, the gas pipeline explosion. Right. They didn't even have records telling them when that disaster, when, the, when those pipes were first laid into the ground. And in my own neighborhood, I've had more than a dozen outages and at one time, when I had the outage, I was talking to the repair crew. I always go out and talk to them because they tell me the truth. And yeah. one of them said to me, a transformer caught fire. In perfectly normal weather, why would a transformer caught fi catch fire? He said, because it is very, very, very old. I oh. said, how old is old? He said, I don't know, maybe you're 100 years old. I said, are you serious? This area didn't even exist 100 years ago. He said, well, I'm saying in a manner of speaking. So when you don't maintain the lines, where yeah. does the money go? You have very high rates. I was on a train once with a guy who was the head of the fleet vehicles at PG&E. And he said to me, he doesn't have a budget because of cost cutting to change the brake linings or to change the engine oil. I said, my goodness, are you driving those trucks? He said, what else can I do? He said, I'm going to go there to beg for money to change the brake lining to have a budget for that. I mean, this is atrocious beyond words. Of course, a lot of this is written up in the Catherine Blunt book, right? California is burning. 
Um, but she still doesn't have all of the facts that I have. I wrote a review of her book. That, and, yeah. and again, I have nothing against PG&E. I mean, I have many friends who still work there. I have known more than 200 people over the years at PG&E. My own daughter worked there for one year at one point. The problem is their upper management is disconnected from reality. They're not focused on what the customer cares about. But now I, I hear what you're saying is all very interesting, but the net uh, energy metering debate, not just PG&E. I mean, we had San Diego Gas or Sempra, San Diego Gas and Electric, Southern California Edison, all um, you know rowing in the same direction here to uh, to limit or to retard um, the distributed energy resources. That is correct. They are united on many fronts. This is one of yeah. them. Uh, yeah. And why is that? Well, because all of them think of rooftop solar as it's a mortal dread. I mean, yeah. they live in dread of rooftop solar. One of them privately said to me that they yeah. expect that by the, in the next 20 years, 50% of the houses in California will have rooftop solar. So I said, then why are you fighting it? Might as well accept it. Get ahead of the curve. Be part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, but, you know, in private, Many of them have told me, including senior VPs of utilities across the country that are fighting rooftop solar. They have solar on their own roof. Their own houses, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's sort of like hypocrisy at its most blatant. So yeah. I, I probably shouldn't say more. I think I already have said more than I should have said. But I mean, yeah. the reality is the governor, I don't know, he's also supporting the, the, the fixed charge on incomes. So the governor has certainly uh, lost his... Uh, I mean, he, he's no Jerry Brown. He's no Arnold Schwarzenegger. He, yeah. He's not a worthy successor to any of them. And actually, Schwarzenegger, yeah. you might remember, wrote a long op-ed in the New York Times when the initial net billing tariff proposal came out. Now, Jerry Brown has been asked by the LA Times more than once to comment on this. And he is very shy, otherwise a very blunt person. But he himself has rooftop solar and batteries, so he's off grid. It's no longer his issue. <laughs> let's uh, let's wrap with a couple of questions. Um, you are supposedly retired, right? Well, I'm. I yes, I am, but I'm not tired. <laughs> yeah. I can tell you're you're still cranking <laughs> away. Uh, you're just you're just not working the nine to five these days. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wake up much later than I used to wake up, I'll be honest. <laughs> you deserve it. You deserve it. Um, let's talk about your house just for a minute, because uh, you're proud of what you've done. And I think uh, I, I'm proud of what you've done. Uh, talk about all the ways that you as a consumer uh, are, are leading and, and, and showing others what they can do. So uh, it's a four bedroom house, uh, two stories, 2,500 square feet, not a huge mansion or anything. Um, it, it's a typical middle-class uh, house and uh, built in 1979, so it's old. And so over the years, uh, I have done energy efficiency improvements. And I guess that the climax was in 2016 when I changed all my HVAC equipment and put in more adding insulation, uh, also added, uh, uh, fixed the duct leakage. I had duct leakage of 56%, which, which was impossible to comprehend. And it mm -hmm. dropped down to 8%. So I did all of that. I gave away my electric spa. And, and now, uh, as a result of all of that, my bill went down by 25%. But it was still too high. It was $200 a month. And I was going to be retiring relatively soon. So I said, okay, I'm going to now do what I never thought I'd be doing. 
which is putting rooftop solar panels. And because I, I have, I live in a court with 10 homes, four of them already had done what I was about to do. So I'm the fifth one. So I put rooftop solar, uh, added a battery for backup during outages and, and for arbitrage against the time of use rate and bought an electric car. All of that happened in 2019. And the bill still not zero, which many people claim it would be. Uh, it, it's between 50 and $80 a year, which a month, excuse me, which actually is higher than many apartments are paying. So I don't think that this cost shift argument has any legs to it, but I, I'm happy. I've had a lot of outages. The battery has kept me going. The electric car costs a third to drive than the gasoline car and, and solar, of course, uh, is the most charming thing because I have an app and the app is updating every five minutes. And in retirement, I spend a lot of time just looking at hourly solar production. Yeah, yeah, it feels good, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, it, it? It has a meditative quality, and I think I would highly recommend it for uh, for relief of the soul. Very good, very good. And and uh, what are you doing to keep balance in your life? I always ask this to people like you. So uh, I have a group of uh, three dozen Pakistani-American friends in the area. I hang out with them. Uh, once or twice a month, one group always is having dinner or lunch. Uh, then we do a lot of traveling. Um, uh, so I have two daughters, uh, both uh, in their 40s and professionals, so we don't get to see them as much as they're single. So we, we make a real effort to, uh, to hang out with them. Of yeah. course, if you get too close to them, we get statements like, why are you clinging to me? That's right. So, so there's certain boundary <laughs> conditions. I, I try to get them interested in this IGFC and NEM business, and I get pushed back. Uh, that's uh, your life, not ours. Uh, don't bore <laughs> us to death. Um, I mean, I, um, you know, I am a Muslim. I have Friday prayers, uh, so I, I do a little bit of that. Yeah. Uh, and generally, you know, th there is the writer in me. I, I still have that open invitation from a Pakistani newspaper. So I can write on whatever topic I want once a week. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I run out of steam. I don't write for a few weeks. But otherwise, I'm researching and writing. And, and just people think, honestly, my friends think I'm crazy. Because they said, you, you quit your job. Why are you doing stuff that you were paid to do? I'm, I'm getting all kinds of innuendos. Keep it up. Keep it up. Keep it up. You're doing great. I, I have so much respect for you. And... Uh, I, I know I've called on you a few times and get, gotten guidance on some rate structures and things. You're a, you're a fantastic expert. Thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast today, Amon. But it was a pleasure, and thank you for reaching out to me. I've always enjoyed our interactions. Yeah, well, we'll do it again, too. So thanks again. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.